Hi, everyone, and welcome to another of the web meetups of Ayn Rand Center. There's a lot of bleakness outside and pessimism, lockdown. So today, how about we talk something different? Today, we talk about beautiful values, love, and romance. And we are discussing this topic with two people who have written on this topic and have studied it deeply and have tried to apply objectivism on this area of life. So we have uh, Dr. Edwin Locke. Dr. Locke is a professor of business at the University of Maryland with a clinical experience, but also internationally known for his research on goal setting. But also he has written on psychology, he has written on objectivism, and he brings his experience to discuss this topic today. But also we have Dr. Ellen uh, Ellen Kenner, Dr. Kenner is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice and she's the host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show, The Rational Basis of Happiness. So both of our guests, they have, as I said, have written on objectivism and psychology and they have written this book, The Selfish Path to Romance. And I'm sure the authors can hold up the version which looks much better than my Kindle one. And I was, I was reading this book. I'm going to push back on the Q&A on some particular issues. But I found it fascinating, not only in terms of understanding romance, but also understanding psychology in general and understanding the application of objectives in real life. So even if you say, well, I'm covered when it comes to romance. I found my soulmate. We're very happy. There's nothing I need. I would still say, have a look at this book because... In a way, I read it, and then the day after, I felt a bit more optimist and a bit more confident in terms of how life can can go on. So it was a very positive experience, which is why behind the scenes, I said a big thank you to the to the authors because I got a lot of value out of it. Anyway, so let's start uh, with so the the format. I guess there's an introduction by each author. Then we go to Q and A. Uh, if you want, if there is, we, we're going to try to track, first of all, the Q&A here in Zoom. I'll be trying to keep an eye also on YouTube Live if there's any comment there. So feel free also to maybe post questions there. So I'm going to call the speakers uh, with their first names. So Edwin, do you want to start? Hey, what do you want? Just an overview? Yes. All right. Well, the, the overarching theme of the book is that successful romance should avoid the false views of altruism, which means you live only to serve others and it's an other world, not you. And narcissism, which is a me only world and nobody else counts. Uh, We view those both as destructive of romantic relationships. And our theme is that it's best if you push mutual self-interest by each working for what you want and supporting each other's values and working at a way as best you can that both of you can get what you want through mutual trade and uh, listening and problem solving. And uh, in addition to that, Alan can maybe add, we cover a lot of things in the book besides this fundamental because most of the books we read on romance are very, very narrow. 
and extremely limited in their coverage. Our goal was to cover as many aspects of romance as we possibly could with mutual self-interest, mutual selfishness as sort of the philosophical guideline. Ellen, do you want to talk about other topics that we cover? Oh, yeah, I can go through the topics. We talk about, <clears throat> first, um, Ed wrote a very nice overview, the history of romantic love, which you, if you're not interested, you can skip, but it is interesting. And then we go into how do you, what, what is love? And how do you make yourself lovable as a person? Because you want to love yourself first. And then we talk about how do you find, we have a whole section, multiple chapters on how to find the right partner and know that is the right one, including how to, how to introspect, how to really look at your emotions and not just go on emotions, but under, unpack them. Uh, we talk about um, how to keep a relationship going over many years. You know, it's one thing to get married and then many times people settle. And instead of feeling that emotion of I love you, they feel I'm used to you. And it, it kind of dries up and you don't want that to happen. We have a section on conflict resolution. Every couple will come in with differences. And if you have really warm methods and think that this is the person I love I'm talking to and we disagree strongly and we need a method to be able to resolve that, there are wonderful methods available to do that. And we discuss those in, in our book. And then, of course, we talk about sex. <laughs> Can't skip that. And, um, and economics. And economics. Okay, but <laughs> didn't give me any time on sex. <laughs> Although there is a trade, a relationship here, right? Um, so we talk about sex and how to how to manage that when you have two people who may not even know the mechanics of it, and who may not know, um, who may be embarrassed if you. Uh, have been brought up as a sacrificer, especially the women, typically the women, then they try to please too much and sex goes, uh, I want to say down the toilet, but sex, sex doesn't last, sex doesn't become wonderful for both people. And it's really hard to keep it active for both people. And finally, we talk about um, how to, what happens if things, we didn't want to end on this, we put this in our appendix, but what happens if things don't work out and you part ways? How can you be enormously supportive of yourself, realistic, and take the time you need and start over again? Like not give up on love. Really try to digest what happened and to part ways in a way that doesn't damage kids for life uh, if you have kids. Um, and basically, we, we leave that on an optimistic note. That's the book in a nutshell. And here it is again. We cover a lot of issues. Uh, for instance, who would ever thought you'd have uh, morality and your moral stature as critical for romance? We have a lot of discussion of that. Yeah. So we cover, we cover, uh, we cover mood. We discover, we cover uh, the visibility principle, which is not the same as praise. A different, it was a different concept. So we trace it back to Aristotle. 
So we cover uh, all the different aspects of romance with the idea that wanting both of you to be happy together requires you to pursue values jointly and support each other's values. And um, I know in one of our classes, we gave a class on this in 2006, and we asked, what is the essence of a romantic relationship? What is it that you want? And I don't know if anybody here wants to take a guess at it. Or that may take too long. So it's emotional intimacy, that feeling in harmony with the other person. In fact, that statue in back of me, I don't know how well you can see it, but it's called Harmony. That's from Quint Cordier's gallery. And that's what you want. You want to feel like you're on the same page. You love the person. You feel at home with the person. And you have a way to deal with disagreements. And you can respect each other's rational values. So, And I want to just say, I have been married to my husband 46 years today. And he's been married to me 46 years today. So it's our anniversary. So this is fun for me to do today. And he's wonderful. I love them. Mm -hmm. Nikos, you're muted. What? Uh, Nikos is speaking, but nobody can okay, hear. Okay, sorry. So you mentioned the visibility, and I think that although the hardest pill to swallow for the non-objectivist reader will be this idea that love requires selfishness, for me, a hard pill to swallow was understanding the idea of visibility. So you mentioned in the book that visibility is not the same as wanting to be appreciated. So a lot of people say, oh, I want to be appreciated. So could both of you elaborate a bit on the idea of visibility and how would you reply to the, let's say, naive objectivist reaction, which would be, why do I need to be seen? Am I not self-sufficient, autonomy? So if I'm great, why do I need an audience? Why do I need uh, someone else to to see that in me. Okay. Well, let's start with uh, a fundamental uh, friendship and relationships are an aspect of a human need. Now, it's not for insecure people. Objectivists don't want to go through life divorced from everyone else in the universe. That would be ridiculous. And if you read Ayn Rand, you know there are passionate romances in Ayn Rand. But the question is what the role is. Now, visibility is different than approval. Visibility, Aristotle said, uh, a, a friend is another self. So it's an enhancement of your sense of self, as opposed to, I know you're feeling insecure, so I'm going to get rid of all your demons and tell you you're okay. If you already feel you're not okay, it's going to be a problem in romance anyway, because you'll feel so much self-doubt. So it's enhanced awareness of yourself. And it's an awareness that you can't get so much from inside yourself because your bundle of feelings, emotions, and thoughts and all day long, every day. And uh, although you do have a sense of self, uh, another person being a vi showing visibility for your virtues and your values can give you enhanced awareness. And so that's the basis in our, our opinion of friendship in general, and of course in romance, it's enhanced of yourself, enhancement of yourself sexually too. So uh, other people are a precious thing in your life, but 
you have to work hard to get that to work for you. Right. You see yourself as somebody. Um, well, I'll just talk about when I'm with Harris. I feel feminine. I feel romantic. I feel like he gets me on the deepest level. So in that sense, it's a psychological mirror. You know, that's, we, we know Aristotle has said, you look in a mirror to see your, your physical body, but with another person, you get a psychological mirror. You know, if Harris points out something, I love the way you did that. Or if I point out, Harris is really funny. I just love him. <laughs> uh, but if he, you know, and he, so he experiences himself as having a great, very upbeat sense of humor with me. Um, because I, I appreciate it so much. I mirror that back for him. And that's what you want. You want your partner to recognize what you value so much in yourself and to reflect that back either in words or it could be just a smile, a knowing smile, but in some sense to reflect that back to you. So we already have many, que some questions and this, is, this, this shows how people relate to the topic. So let's start with some questions on the chat. So someone says the book only has one brief page about getting a date. It seems to imply that it's easy. I find it difficult to get a date. I've had a few, but I suspect it could be a lot easier. So you must have a lot of people to ask you about it. Is there any other advice you can give? Are there other books you can recommend or people who can help me with my dating profile, etc.? I think you could write a whole other book about this topic. So if I'm right, your book was, this is a 2011 edition, right? So it was before, mm -hmm. before Tinder and all that stuff. So could you give an advice on, on how to find other people who, who are interested romantically? But also, if, do you have any comments whether the dating scene has changed since the, the time of the book because of dating apps and all that stuff? Because of COVID? <laughs> <laughs> I can't help there. <laughs> Ed, do you want to go first? Well, uh, very briefly, of course, it's very, very heavy online now, but you got to be very, very cautious about online. For one thing, people lie when they publish their stuff about what they're actually like. Secondly, you don't get a full picture online. So you really have to have face-to-face -face contact and you really have to spend time together and uh, the other, besides online, of course, you if you're active in activities, whether at work or other kinds of activities, you can meet people naturally and you can get picked up by friends. So there's the important thing is not to rush and not to think the Internet's going to make it perfect for you. It's, it's, you've got to be patient and you've got to try to see the person as a whole person face to face and then take your time seeing how things work out. But if this doesn't work for someone, as the person who asked the question, if, if, so what if it's not, if you haven't got, let's say, a big social circle, or if your source, in my, in my situation, for example, I'm a lecturer in a university, I like my co colleagues, but the class of values would be so big that even if, some kind of romantic feelings would develop, it would be really difficult now within a social science department in the university to have this kind of, we're going to get to different values because Maria has asked a particular question on that. But let's stick on that question. So Ellen, if someone hasn't got, let's say, a big social circle, so 
in the book, quite often, uh, the way you put it is someone goes in a dinner party and they meet someone, or, or one of the most beautiful stories was in the gallery. But not everyone is so lucky, let's say, to go to a gallery and meet uh, someone who, who they, they have this, uh, this very nice... Uh, this very nice connection. So what can someone do who cannot meet people easily? Well, and I our friends says, could you give something more specific advice than just... Okay, that's... Well, I think they need to think in the context of their own life and would they be willing to challenge themselves if they don't get out? And I'm not talking about the COVID period because it's a whole <laughs> different world. But it, um, for example, if someone... I heard someone recently... Uh, say that 100% of the girls he, at, he doesn't ask out won't date him. I love that line. <laughs> Meaning you need to be active. You can't just assume that you'll find someone. For me, my mother was desperate. She didn't want me to go back with an old boyfriend. So she called up all of her friends behind my back that do you have do you know any guys do you uh, do you have sons or friends of your sons that could date my daughter and luckily I found Harris Harris is, was one of those dates and I wanted to marry him on the first night um, I had dated a lot uh, but um, and so had he but and other things that you can do my daughter went on the match.com or Cupid or there are different websites you can go on and she found a lovely partner. Uh, you absolutely should be involved in activities you love. Like one of the things, if I were in dating, the worst thing I could do would be to go to a football game or a baseball game because I hate those. <laughs> I can't stand that noise in the background. So I don't want to find someone that I love there because we would be on such different pages. But my son found his wife uh, dancing. He, he's a ballroom, professional ballroom dancer, and they both are. Uh, so you really need to do things that you love doing. And if you have hobbies that are more sedate, that don't, that, that keep you, um, like if I were, oh, this is, this is going to go back to the 1950s, but if I were in a knitting circle with a bunch of women and saying, I can't find a guy, I need to get a different hobby. All right. And then what Ed had mentioned, you ask friends of friends, you ask people, can you put out an all points bulletin for me? I'm looking to date people and be willing to put yourself on the line and ask people out. Women or men can ask people out nowadays. Just matchmaking myself said, you, you ought to meet so-and-so. Uh, and they said, who's that? I said, so-and-so that I happen to know. Sometimes it's really worked out well. And my wife, I'm not as successful as Ellen and romance. It took me several tries, although I'm extremely happy now. Uh, but I met my current wife at work. So there's so many options if you're active. So can I ask something as a follow-up to this? There's a multi-million dollar business going on nowadays, which is learning men how to do so-called cold approach or pickup artistry or however you want to call it, which it's mostly about going to a woman they don't know and talk to her. So, yeah. And most people have the view that this is uh, the players, but according to their testimony, mostly shy guys that don't know how to talk to women. And this is an experience in socialization. So taking away all the negative views that someone could have about pickup artists, would you encourage someone to learn how to 
So you see someone, let's say, in a cafe or in a gallery or whatever, would you, do you think that, quote, cold approach is a good idea? If you know how to do it, absolutely. You can go over and say, I love that picture. And I notice you're looking at it. What do you love? Do you love it? Or what do you, how, what do you think of it? And then you start up a conversation. You don't go over and say, hi, my name is Ellen and I'd like to date you. You look cute. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you, you, you have to have, and these are, so, these are, as you say, social skills or communication skills. There are lots of, there's a book, The Loneliness Book by Mary Ellen Copeland of ways of how to connect with people initially if you don't have those, that skill set. And I certainly didn't have it early on. You know, I want to note something here. Uh, I have a lot of acquaintances who cannot, some of whom are married and some not, cannot carry a conversation. I'm, I'm, just, I'm astounded. So when I talk to them, I carry the whole conversation because they can't do it. And I'm saying, gosh, if you didn't able to carry and start a conversation, how are you going to find a romantic partner? So that's a skill. Now, some people... It's easy because they're extroverts. Some people it's not easy because they're introverts. But you need to learn carrying on a conversation. For instance, let's say I'm in a cab, taxi cab in New York City. Okay. I can start a conversation with a Pakistani taxi driver in New York City. How do you do that? There's wrong country, wrong language to say, uh, tell me how long you've lived here. Do you have a family? How long have you been a cab driver? Now, I'm not going to date the guy or the lady, but you have to learn to start doing it. And it's not that hard if you think, how can I ask a person about themselves to start with? As Ellen said, why do you like that, that painting? If you're passive, you're, you're letting other people carry the whole conversation. It's not going to be very good in dating. So let's go to a live question and... Okay. Then I'll return to the question in the comments. Marilyn. Um, I, I think I've done a lot of internet dating. I got divorced a little over five years ago and granted I'm not young. I mean, some of you know how not young I am, but what I, what I realized was Part of the reason I made a bad choice when I got married was because I didn't know how to get to know people. I really had poor social skills. And I think I met maybe a hundred men on internet dating. I wish, I really wish now I kept a log because there were some kind of funny experiences. But I think part of what makes it difficult for people is they, they want a formula for meeting the perfect person really quickly. Whereas I looked at it kind of like as a job interview where you learn something each time. And initially I was terrified, but I got better at it and it got to be kind of fun. And, you know, I did all the safety things. Like I made sure my sister knew where I was and the guy's phone number and all of that. And um, eventually I, it became really fun and I gave some Toastmaster speeches about it. And, and I had a couple of rules. One of them was, like Ellen said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't uh, take. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And, and my biggest motto was just always be honest, always be kind. And 
it was a blast. And I learned so much about myself that, um, but I mean, I'm I'm still single, but Mm. I've learned a lot of skills. I'm still looking. Um, It isn't going to happen in three dates, people. Well, good for you for trying. Thank you. That's a wonderful example. And that statement came from Craig Biddle. So I would love to take credit, but I can't. (laughs) I love that. The uh, 100% statement. So yeah, Mary Aline, I think that's both Harris and I dated a lot before we met each other. And that was such a great experience because I knew what I didn't want. And I knew the wonderful qualities in each person that I met that I loved. I mean, there were many men that I dated. I I just, in the old days, you didn't, you would go out one night with one guy, another night with another guy. During my daughter's generation, they'd go out as groups, you know, just friends would go out. So it was a different culture. But, um, and it, I just, you know, you want to take this part from this person, this character trait from another and put them all together and make the perfect person. Of course, they want to do that with you too. <laughs> keep what they like of you and ditch the rest. So, and then when I met my husband, it really, I, I mean, I was partly lucky, but partly because I had had all that experience of what I didn't like and Harris didn't have the ne- negatives and he had so many of the positives that the first night I was just blown over and just wanted to marry him. And we got married nine months later and I wouldn't recommend doing what we did, but it worked perfectly in our case and I wasn't pregnant. <laughs> Good story. Right. I, uh, how would, oh, sorry, Ed, did you want to add something on that? Uh, no, I think I've said it. Right. I agree with what Ellen said. And Mary Elaine. No, the only difference is she she hit it right the first time, and good for her. For me, it took three times, but I got it right. Good. So let me take one more question for, for the comment. So Maria says, most people aren't familiar with Ayn Rand's definition of love. Can a union between an objectivist and someone unfamiliar with objectivism survive? Ah. <laughs> it depends. You have to you have to talk a lot, see if you have common values. In right. any way, and and you know, see how you, what what your emotional responses are, and by introspection, why you're having them, pro or con. So uh, you have to just try things. You, you need to know the person's character. You know, are they, both of my, my daughter and my son married non-objectivists, um, but neither of their partners are religious. And I know we would joke about it. One of the first things you want to ask on a date are, what are you doing Sunday morning? <laughs> Meaning, are they going to church or not to rule out religious people? Uh, but you want to ask about... Um, you'll find out whether they're religious. I mean, that's part of just that getting to know you phase. And you don't want to blind yourself during that phase, like, oh my gosh, this is the hottest guy I've ever dated or gal. And, you know, not really look at how they're acting. You've taken so much information, how they're acting, how they act when they're stressed, how they act with family members. want to see them in different situations to 
say, what type of a person is this? Do I like the way they acted? You also want to look at it as a relationship, as a place where you learn together. You grow together, both in a marriage and earlier in, in dating, that you're learning about yourself and you're making yourself better. So it's if you have that approach, it can be win-win. So here's a question uh, related to something in the book. So one of the biggest influences today in the dating advice scene is evolutionary psychology. And you will hear terms thrown around such as uh, you know, hypergamy, women want to marry up, or men, and, uh, men are divided to providers and lovers or alphas and betas. Different people use different terminology. But the common thread is that there's something very primal, biological, slash deterministic in all this. So let me give an example from the book and what the evolutionary psychologist would say and what would be your reply. Remember that story where there is, for people who haven't read the book, so there is a woman in a dinner party and she meets someone, and that someone has some good aspects, but also he has some bad aspects. So he, he cheated on his, on his ex-wife. So after the way, the way you describe it, after the date, she feels she's attracted to him, but she's not going to sleep with him yet. She needs to, to, to meet him, to know him better. Now, the evolutionary psychology would say that this guy goes straight to the provider category. That's his, that the woman doesn't feel genuine desire for him. She doesn't feel this burn inside her for that man. Therefore, yes, maybe she's going she's, she's gonna to make the calculation that he's good, let's say, marriage material or relationship material. But there's never going to be this, this burning desire because, as they say, desire cannot be negotiated. So what would you say to that? Would you say that someone who says, well, I'm not sure yet and let's see and maybe he has to jump through some hoops or whatever. Do you think that this can end to a very, very passionate this, uh, relationship? Or do you think there's anything in what the evolutionary psychologists say, which is that, well, probably there's this division between lover and provider? Well, first thing to do, I would say, throw out the evolutionary trash. I believe in evolution. But this is this is baloney, because they love to say everything that happens is an evolutionary purpose. It doesn't help you to try to role play in accordance with evolution. So forget forget that entire way of thinking. Ask yourself what kind of person are they? What kind of person are you looking for? Now, uh, in terms of uh, being provided for, we believe men and women should have careers whenever possible, except when maybe you're raising children. But the more relevant thing, let, let's say you're the woman, is the man the kind of responsible person who's willing to earn a living? Because there are men who are moochers. You know, I want the women to do it all. Or, or so is the woman somebody who wants to drift? Or does the woman want, at some point after raising children, if they do, uh, some purposeful interest in life, such as a, a business or a career, because it gives them a sense of control over their life, gives them a sense of purpose, gives them a sense of confidence. So uh, I would just get rid of that whole uh, language because we're, you know, we're not cavemen. So it distorts the whole way of looking at it. If you're marrying for wealth, then you're looking for uh, somebody to 
support you because you don't want to take responsibility uh, yourself. So he's looking for uh, you know, somebody to support you because you're too lazy. Uh, that's not a good way of looking at it. And it's not a good way to look at status. The status is the values of other people. You know, are they famous in the role of other people? Status doesn't mean anything. Ask yourself, what are their actual values? What are their actual virtues? Regardless of whether the status seeking to me is a very, very dangerous idea. Just to clarify, usually the term provider is not, doesn't necessarily mean that the woman is a gold digger or something. It means that she puts him off the box. Well, the sweet guy, he's going to make a good husband. Maybe he's a good choice if uh, uh, I want to settle down. But it's a different category with that guy that you're going to feel that burn and you're going to throw all the rules out of the window because you, you need that guy now. And so yesterday, for example, Sean Connery died and a lot of people said that is a guy that no one, no woman could resist to you. So, so you wouldn't say maybe for Sean Connery, well, I'm attracted, but I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. And let's see what's, what's going to happen. I'm obviously I'm playing devil's advocate here, but just want to see where the, this discussion will, will well, go. Sean Connery is a very sexy man and very successful and a very good actor. I think he was married to the same woman for a long time. I don't know if he cheated or not, uh, but, uh, Uh, sexual attractiveness and being handsome and virile by itself isn't enough. Lots of men are like that. And they're Hollywood people. They're terrible. They only get married for two weeks and they change their minds. So you've got to integrate the person as a whole person. Uh, as a whole person. Alan, do you want to add to that? Um, you know, I... I went to one of the talks by uh, one of these famous evolutionary biologist ladies. And I just, I felt like I was going through grad school again, listening to all theories of Kant and human. I just, I just said, this isn't the way I come at love, that I love the objectivist approach where you're looking, people have free will. And if you're blown away by someone's sexiness, That's wonderful. But as you get to know them, that sexiness may vanish in a second if, if they're an air brain or something or if they are corrupt. Um, you know, you're, you want to be attracted to that person's character and you want all of the above. You want someone that's soft and you can feel at home with and someone you feel some passion for. And that changes. I mean, your mood will change over the days and weeks. So you're not going to have nonstop passionate feelings. But you can create that mood again when you're ready for that passion. And you just feel internally that you love that person. So I don't, this, the evolutionary part has never, um, I, I just brushed it aside as, oh, that's too bad they don't have the objectivist view. <laughs> that, That so I assume, I assume this also means that you don't believe in this theory that today is very big, that there's like a 20% of men that get all the attention of women. And now with social media and dating sites, this, this 20% gets all the attention and this leaves the 80% on the bottom being incels or however this, uh, the culture calls these people. So basically they say we are going into times where 
because if human attract all the attention, many are left with, with not much uh, left. Oh, I, I don't buy that. You know, there's somebody that I found extremely unsexy during, I love ice skating, the figure skating during the Olympics. And when I first saw him, it was Scott Hamilton. And I said, oh, he just looks weird. He's not my type. I'll tell you, I grew to love Scott Hamilton. He had such a great personality that it, it was one of those examples. And I try to save those examples in my own life of people who you're not attracted to initially because of looks or because of some, something about them. And then you get to know them and you grow to love them because you see much deeper and you're marrying the deeper qualities in someone. It's, looks matter. But looks don't, things can override looks. And I would never, I mean, you go in so handicapped thinking that I'll never find somebody. I had clients that weren't necessarily good looking. And one of them I remember said, um, well, my goal this year is I'm going to find a partner. And they set it as a deliberate goal. They went out and they did what Mary Aline did. Uh, which is that they just dated a lot. They set that goal and they found they found somebody and they were successful. So I think you can't, you're not setting it as a goal and setting it as a fun goal, getting duty the heck out of there, setting it as interesting that you're going to meet interesting people with no obligation to marry them. You're just learning about different types of character traits. I think it's very important to pay no attention to the fact that you're not in the top 20% in looks or popularity, forget about it. You gotta yeah. find a person who's okay with you. Uh, I had a patient who uh, nobody really liked, including me. Uh, he wasn't a bad person, but I didn't particularly like him. And he didn't thought nobody liked him and it was true. Nobody did. And I said, look, so what? There's probably some women there, if you keep looking, that would like you. And it was true. So you don't eliminate yourself because you're not in the top 10% or 20%. Find somebody that's suited to you personally. And I, but, I personally am not attracted to the Sean Connery, Connery types. So you never know what someone's attracted to. They may be attracted to somebody. You know, I, I, I would dismiss that. I would just look at it as you've got the, you're, I don't want to say this sounds negative, but it, I mean it in a very fun sense that you've got your own playing field. <laughs> um, that's why I don't want to say it. But you've got your you, you're out there to try to find a wonderful value, just like you would a career. But this is more fun if you because you get to meet people. Well, it can't be more fun. They're both in different categories. Good. So here's a very interesting comment. So Jose is saying for, for, for some time, there was some guilt when he found himself pursuing those who were not objectivists. But now he understands the issue of a sense of life so much better. So he feels less guilt about it. So could it be then that someone might not? So would you say that sense of life is the most important thing, even if you don't share the same psychology or even if they don't, even if you don't, uh, if the other person doesn't know objectivism? So would you pay more attention to sense of life and how do you sense it? So how do you? How do you pick someone say, yeah, that person is not an objectivist, but because of their sense of life, they're good. Or let me take it a step further. Good sense of life, wrong premises. So let's say a leftist 
but you realize that there's a mistake of judgment and not a moral error. I think you've got to be very careful of sense of life. It's a very complicated concept, almost impossible to explain, but it's to do with your basic fundamental outlook on life. That's not enough. I mean, that's great. It's not enough to carry a romantic relationship. You've got to have common values, uh, mm -hmm. traits that you like, uh, virtues that you have. Uh, so sense of life is not enough, in my opinion, to carry a romantic relationship. You've got to have more, a lot more things going of the type we discuss in our book. Yeah, I know of uh, one situation where you had two people on the opposite side of the political spectrum very profoundly um, tied to their views, and they were married, and the sparks fly. The sparks fly, they just, and so what they have to do is, they still value each other, but they've had to compartmentalize their relationship because if they cross the line in politics, which as we know, isn't just politics because politics is at the top. Politics is based on what? It's your view of ethics. It's your view of um, altruism, egoism. I mean, it goes all the way down. And uh, it's a very, it's a, it's a, I wouldn't recommend it if you uh, differ on fundamentals. If you differ on smaller things, like Harris liked riding a motorcycle, and I tried it once and said, that's it. You know, that was okay. He could keep the motorcycle, but I wasn't going to ride on it. You can differ on smaller things and have a wonderful relationship, and you don't want to make those into moral issues either. You know, I don't so want to... Yeah, go ahead. If you do sense of life as a primary, you're asking it to do too much. Yeah, you're but you do have too that, much. You want to unpackage it. You want to introspect, yeah. say, what is it I am loving about this person and what potential you think in the full context over the breadth of your life? Uh, meaning, you know, we, we differ in this area here. I, I really should have a concrete I'm use politics because I started with it or altruism. I feel like he should do a lot more for his family and for me and the kids. And it's going to co cover the breadth of your life and then look long range. What is your love trajectory? Ed, Ed came up with that term, love trajectory. You look at your, when you're in any relationship, whether it's just dating or longer range of marriage or partnership, you look at your trajectory. Is it a roller coaster trajectory? I had one colleague who said, Oh, yeah, we fight a lot and then we make up and then we fight a lot and then we make up. And that's what marriage is. And, or is it where you're you're in a relationship and then you can see my hands. It starts going down. The trajectory is just going down either on a mild slope or a deep slope. Or does it rise? You get to know each other and then it rises and it might have a few dips, but you work things out and grow together. You want to monitor and understand when any of those downward trends are happening and what's accounting for the upward trends what's making the relationship great for both of you that goes for both partners not just one so can i ask one question so for someone who hasn't read the book so the book's title uh, just to remind people is the selfish path to roman so you mentioned the term path right. so is there a specific let's say step-to-step -step process that so someone who is who's saying, okay, my life, my romantic life isn't going anywhere. Oh, here's something about the path. So if you had to put this path in a few words or to describe it, 
what exactly is this path and why the path and not, let's say, the, uh, the secret or whatever? So what is the process that you imply there? Well, that's sort of in our book, meeting the person, learning about, learning about their values, learning about visibility, looking things that are in common, seeing if your personality clash. So it's something you learn. Uh, I think in dating, you can have a turnoff within minutes. If somebody really turns you off with terrible things or looking horrible and horrible language. But when it comes to the positives, uh, people are complicated, so it takes time. Right. So Ed and I, um, when we talk about the path, you start with yourself. How do you make yourself lovable? And there you're going to get your objectivism. You know, how, how do you uproot altruism? Because I certainly had altruism. I had a bad case of altruism. And um, Ayn Rand, I saved myself with Ayn Rand. But, you know, I was always, I, I, I always wanted to be the good person without any resentment, meaning always putting other people first without any resentment. Go figure that one out. <laughs> so it was wonderful when I discovered Ayn Rand. But we, I pulled out a paper here. Ed and I gave a class when you, and um, that path involves learning about a person, growing with them, learning each other's values, encouraging them to pursue their values because that's selfish. You encourage, you know, you both want to pursue your own values. Uh, you want to show that you care for them on an ongoing basis. And then in this paper, we have understanding myself on one of these. You're not going to be able to read it. And then understanding my partner. You want to get to know each other over time. What are your intellectual interests? I'll just read a few of these. What hobbies and sports do you like? What art and recreational pursuits do you like? What's an ideal romantic evening for you? It may be very different for each person. What vacations do you enjoy? Do you enjoy surprises or do you like to be told about, you know, work on a plan, not have anybody spring things on you? Um, how does the person listen and how do they give advice? And what is their relationship with their family and their self-concept? So that's just a few of the, the many things that Ed and I, that you're looking for when you're looking at a partner, for a partner, and, um, and within a relationship too. And that path involves continually learning and being willing to grow and uprooting altruism or narcissism wherever they raise their ugly heads. So to, to, to incorporate here two questions to, to, to one. So, because we have a relevant question on something like question on YouTube. So what is the role of that AIDS plays to this one? So is there at any point where you say, oh, now it's too late? So for example, a, big, a, a film that had a big appeal was, uh, I think that the Bridges of Madison or something like that. I have the Greek translation one with Clint Eastwood and who they both find the love of their life at a relatively uh, not very young age. Or in the love, love in the time of cholera, uh, this huge crush that this guy has on this girl only materializes when he's like 70 and she's 70. And to put it differently, we have someone in the comments who says, I haven't, I'm 17, I haven't had a girl 
since uh, 14, I would say to that guy, you had a girlfriend at 14, you were definitely more popular than I was in school. So <laughs> you should be, you know, you're, you're doing quite well. So, and of course, at that date, you always feel that, oh, now I, that was the biggest love. I'm never going to find someone like her. So what is the role that that AIDS can play in romance? And a caveat here, could it be that after a particular AIDS, it's never the same. So I've heard people saying, my, the love of my life when I was 21, there's no way I'll ever feel like that because I'm not that, let's say, pure or however you want to call it in everyday language person. So they say, there's no chance I'm going to feel this, like the first love or people talk about the first love. So what's what's happening here with, uh, with, with different uh, stages in life where you encounter love? I think there's two issues here. One is, Age differences. The age difference problem is uh, is the following, uh, and it's classic: man wants sex and he's seventy-five and has money. The woman wants money. Doesn't work out because she cheats on him. And then he's angry and blah blah blah, and uh, all kind of horrible things happen. So let's talk about aging in general. Uh, the strength of passion may not be the same when you're 16 versus when you're 60. But the depth of attachment, the depth of the love can be greater because you know much more about the person you're learning more and you've had 40 or 50, sometimes 60 or 70 years together of learning about each other and valuing each other. So even though you're not sexually as arousable, you're close, intimate, you're intimate emotionally because of all that thing, all the things you've had in common and the common values and common experiences. So I don't think it's ever too late. Uh, divorce among elderly is actually increasing. And people in uh, old person's homes often get married, you know, widows and widowers, they get married. You know, age 75 and, you know, be very careful on the money side. Just make sure the money thing is very, very carefully laid out. But I think it's great. So I, I would like to add two things. Um, my dad is, my mother died when my dad was around 89 and he didn't want to think, well, that was it. You know, I was married to her the whole time and it's over. So at 89, he started writing books and then he started dating his old girlfriend, his old girlfriend's <laughs> sister. They were twins. He dated, he really wanted the other twin and he got her. So at the age of 94, every night, he doesn't talk with his three daughters that much because he's too busy. He talks with her every night for an hour before she's in Chicago. He's in Rhode Island. And he, he definitely has not lost any sex drive. I told you he sometimes embarrasses me before the call. <laughs> but, but he's a hoot. He's, he's colorful. He's a hoot. And you never have to give up on it. And of course, you can always take Cialis or other things that can help you if you're a guy, enjoy it more. Um, the second point was, yes, it could be true if uh, Dagny lost um, or Francisco lost Dagny, right? It might be that he might feel he may never find that love of his life again. That's true. And it, I mean, it may be true, 
but he can find wonderful companionship, a, a very different person uh, who brings different things to the table and he can have a wonderful relationship with that person. So you never want to say to yourself, it's over, I had that wonderful relationship, unless you don't want that anymore. You know, some people say, I've, some people say it was a horrible roller coaster ride, and I just don't want to get married again. But I would say if you're looking for romance, and you, and one dies, you can certainly find another one, even at the age of 14. So <laughs> there's some interesting stories and things going on in the comment. By the way, David, thanks. The, the film I was referring to is Bridges of Madison County. Uh, so here's another question. How are relationships with a large age gap successful? And if they only last five or 10 years, is it any less a success? I assume this could also mean, let's say someone is 70, found someone who is younger, but... 10, 15 years later, maybe that person dies. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Yeah, no question about that, I would say, but let's see what the, our guests say. So large age gap, and what if you don't have that many years ahead? What's wrong with that? So Supposing you're both 80, and you know you're not going to live forever. Nothing wrong with that. Sure, you no. get your finances clear, because you don't want kids suing uh, are getting infuriated because you've given all your money to your new wife and your kids get left out. Be sure you have that <laughs> clearly. Uh, and your kids could be furious thinking she's going to drain you of your money. Like, so have that really worked out for your, for your kids. But otherwise, I don't see why you can't fall in love after 80. No, I think that I, you were talking about an age gap, like marrying someone well, a lot. Two different things. Like Age gap versus age. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about now two 85-year-olds. Yeah. Well, that's fine. If it's, a, if it's an age gap where the man wants sex and the woman wants money, that doesn't work out because that's usually a 40-year difference. So, that doesn't so are we to assume that every time that, uh, or most of the times that a woman who is, let's say, 30 falls in love or, quote, falls in love with someone who is, I don't know, 70 or something, would you say that this is mostly the case that there is some uh, motive that has to do with money? Probably most yes, of the time. Sarah. It could be small exceptions, but I think most of the time, yes. Oh, I don't, I think it really depends. Uh, I think that two people, I think as long as it's mutual and that both people have really thought through the full context for their own lives, the implication, the younger woman or the younger man, whichever way it goes, needs to really think. This person may get sick early on. I mean, anybody can get sick, I know that. But, you know, they're getting older, they could get Alzheimer's. Would I be, how would I handle that if I'm in my uh, 40s and this person is in their, well, let's make it 60s and 80s and they get Alzheimer's? or crippled or something. Do I want that type of a lifestyle? You really need to think long range on that and ask yourself a lot of questions on how your life would look going forward. Uh, without And if you love the person, if they do feel dear and irreplaceable, um, then as long as it's mutual, there's nothing wrong with that age gap. I mean, we know some people with an age gap, most of us here. And 
it's working, it's worked out. Well, okay, I think you and I are gonna disagree. I think it's a extremely low probability of something like that working. You can't rule it out because there are exceptions. Yeah, but I don't think that's the normal case. I think, I don't think it's the normal case in dating. I think that those are outliers. No, of course it's not normal. It's very unusual. But he was asking about it. And right. someone, someone brings in the brings up in the comments Humphrey Bogart and Lorraine Bacall. But look, that was something like 15, 20 years. But look, that was Humphrey Bogart. I mean, <laughs> I would fall in love with Humphrey Bogart, age difference or not. So yeah, Howard. Having said that, Lorraine Bacall is also quite often when I listen to the Fountainhead, I I think that she would be probably the best to play. Uh, Fifteen years to me is not an issue. I'm talking about 75 versus 25. Yeah. As a yeah, very, that, very high risk, low probability. But um, 10 or 15 years is not necessarily a disastrous. Right. Okay, let's go to a live question by Sam. Hi, Sam. Oh, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, there you go. Um, so yeah, my question is actually uh, a question I've asked uh, the two of you personally last year, um, and it's on the question of um, the phenomenon of first uh, love on first sight. Is that um, a real thing? Um, and if I can follow that up with a question on disagreements, um, I think for me, uh, er early on in discovering objectivism, one of the things that I embraced or maybe misunderstood was the idea of compromise. And so when I would disagree with somebody, I would say, you know, I'm not gonna compromise, I'm not gonna cave in. And is, is there room for compromise in, in a relationship? Okay, first, love at first sight. Remember that first sight can be, lead, lead to something permanent that works. But the information you have at first sight is very limited. So it can be uh, undermined when you learn something more about the person. So you gotta be very careful. But, but I wouldn't say it can never happen. I'm not sure if Ellen was loved at first sight, but uh, it's, it's possible and it's great when it happens. Or Dagny with Hank. I mean, Hank with Dagny seeing her on the railroad. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's fiction. Yeah, but it's, it's nice when that happens. Uh, that's nice when that happens. But don't count on it because of the need to learn uh, more. Now, compromise is in our book at some length. And the question is, what are the compromises about? And we give a lot of examples there. For, for, for instance, uh, some people might want to go out to dinner. Some might want to uh, uh, have friends over. Some might want to go to the theater. They might want to play tennis. They might want to sail. They might want to go to Europe. They might want to go to Canada. So uh, the question is, can and in having interests separate from your spouse is okay. Lots of people do things separate from their spouses that they personally love, and that's okay too. The question is, is there enough in common that you can enjoy things together? So you wouldn't want a spouse to give up a career they were passionately in love with just to please you. But there might be adjustments in your career and you can do it in different ways. So both of you can get what you want. So 
compromise is contextual. Okay, you have to hold the full context. And you wouldn't want them to uh, force you to give up your philosophy because it embarrasses them or something like that. So you have to, you have to hold the entire context in the compromising. Now I would ask Sam, do you have an example, just a quick one, because I know we don't have a lot of time, but of something that you felt, I just can't compromise on this. You're, you're muted. Oh, he's muted. Okay. Uh, okay. S Sam, are you okay. with me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was uh, muted. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think one of uh, the biggest gripes that I had um, early on was just, um, again, with the whole philosophy. Um, I, 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 I had a hard time, um, you know, trying to, uh, I guess, um, um, find similar values um, with somebody who didn't share the philosophy, and particularly when it got to politics. I mean... There was a girl that uh, I had liked, um, you know, Christian, but did not take her um, Christianity too seriously. But in politics, it just uh, differed so much that, you know, um, to me, I just don't think that it could have worked. But when we would hang out, we would always have a great time. Because we don't talk about politics or religion or philosophy. Right, but, but it's all there in the background. Let's project forward. You get married. You have children. Now what? Her parents want right. you to have a religious ceremony. I mean, my parents wanted told me that my, um, my grandfather and Harris's grandmother would die if we didn't have a rabbi. And we were having a, we got married at the crack of dawn with a justice of the peace. It was a sweet wedding. Uh, and at night, we had a fake rabbi come in. This is before objectivism. We had not a fake rabbi, I'm sorry. He was a real <laughs> rabbi. But I guess he is fake, right? <laughs> he, he, uh, and we were told we'll just go into a closet in the reception area and he'll do hocus pocus and then they can lie to their people and say we got married by a rabbi. Well, they invited the whole family into a huge room and they, this is our wedding night. And they had the rabbi um, go through his hocus pocus and it went on and on. And I felt like I could kill on my wedding night, not Harris, but I just could not believe they did that. And I would never compromise on something like that on really your genuine deep values, especially on your own wedding. Um, but if there, Harris and I compromise all the time on many things like on a, on a daily basis, do you want to take a walk now? I'm working. Well, let's figure out a time that works for both of us and we'll take a walk on the beach or, you know, uh, I mean, those are small things, but we're always compromising because you're working with each other and you want to find solutions that work for both of you. And sometimes you give a little, sometimes your partner gives a little, but you feel like it's fair. You have that trader relationship, which is so great with, from objectivism too. This can, this can be a problem if you're very involved in philosophy, if you're somebody that's uh, completely opposed to it. You know, like an objectivist and a Catholic really might be at odds. But um, I've heard of cases where an objectivist is married to a religious person and he lets her go to church without any complaint. And she goes by herself. 
and that's that's it. There's no more discussion of the issue, and they seem to do okay. So you have to hold the entire context and how much it affects you psychologically, uh, because it could affect you every day by coming up in various different ways, and it could affect you very little. But you have to really see how see how it works out on a on a uh, on a daily basis. And of course, with religion, you're bringing in metaphysics and epistemology. You know their view of the world, and are they praying for you to get better or taking you to the doctors when you you know have a crisis? Yeah, um, and a big thing in religion is is th their main source of knowledge is faith. Right, right. Which you means belief without evidence. Right. And if your basic means of knowledge is reason, that could have a lot of daily practical consequences. Right, and the altruism can drive you crazy because that that's all the way throughout in religion, right? I, I think I can remember of a very, very potential relationship that in a way didn't even happen. And reading the book yesterday with that relevant chapter, I understood why. So again, people read that even if even if finding a partner is not your current, let's say, priority, do read the book. You can understand things not only regarding to the future, but also projecting back on things that have uh, that have happened. Uh, here's a question I forgot, by the way. If there's a lot of things happening in the comments, so if someone has asked a question and I haven't addressed it, feel free to go back to it. So Harry, quite early, asked a question which is very important. Would you yeah. give, for, specifically for understanding the context of the book, would you give a couple of examples of visibility where you couldn't find it for yourself or not as well. So, so could you could you think of specific examples, for example, from your personal lives where you understood now now what I'm experiencing is this notion of visibility. So someone can see something and now this makes me more complete or this adds fuel to the romance or whatever. My wife fell in love with me mainly because of my moral uh, stature. She said, I really admire the fact that you have principles. And I admire the fact that you stick to them and you don't lie and cheat and play roles and, and the like. And I felt very visible. So I married her. <laughs> that among other things. So that's visibility. Uh, it could be for a lot of other things. And I think even for, oh, were you done, Ed, are you? Yes. Oh, and I think for me, uh, when I first met Harris, as I confessed, I had, I was struggling, I was straddling the fence, as Ayn Rand phrases it in Walt's speech, between altruism and egoism. And with Harris, he saw in me potential that I didn't see in me. He encouraged me to go back to graduate school. Graduate school? Are you kidding? And I just, I had, when I read Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand, I, I couldn't stop reading her. I just, once I started, I was addicted because I was lifting off the altruism. But I just, he just was so encouraging. And um, so I felt, I, when I, Sometimes my kids will joke and they will say, oh, that's just mom. You know, mom being uh, uh, 
ditzy blonde, I'm not blonde. And so I get the image from her that from them sometimes, not all the time, because they love me, but that, you know, I'm this not so smart a person. And with Harris, I always felt that he encouraged me. He loved my mind and I grew, I flourished with that. So in terms of visibility, that's what a partner can give you. They can give you that, that, uh, that emotional support they see in you potentials that you have and that you can grow or, and it was lovely. Plus I think also um, sexually, I think Harris always liked, I always felt sexy around Harris. I was with other boyfriends and you know, I could have worn pajamas every single day and it wouldn't have mattered. But with Harris, you know, I definitely got the sexual visibility, the intellectual visibility, the sexual visibility, the warmth, the playfulness. You know, I feel like a really playful person and I get that reflected. And in some marriages, you can be very playful with all your friends and you go back to your spouse and they treat you like you're a cold fish or something. And that's a horrible situation to be in. You live with them every day. So, yeah, I think these are good examples and, and specific, again, re reading the book, you get a good idea about the, the visibility, the visibility thing, but I think these were good examples. So here's another question. Is it possible for someone to have the biggest, e what's the verb, exalting? No, like exalta the, the biggest experience of exaltation when they have the wrong premises and when they were a person who is an irrational or a mystic? So could it be, so let's say you have a relationship very passionate when you're, let's say, 21. And then since then, now you're a, a different person, a better person. But what if your, let's say, your strongest experience was when you are a person who today you wouldn't want to be that person and with a girl that today you wouldn't be able to, to connect to her. And yet the feeling, the experience is 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 bigger than anything you have ever experienced so how can one come to terms with that that the the, the strongest feeling possible came in a period where you were not the person who you had to be and the other person also was not the person that today with your rational proper premises would probably fall in love with well again there's an age issue here so my first experience uh was when i was about 18, and it was the most exciting thing that ever happened in my whole life. That was utterly thrilling and exciting, and we spent all our time together and loved each other. But it was very clearly, it came on very clearly that it wasn't, didn't have a future uh, because there were too many other things that wouldn't have worked out. So uh, there's a certain element, your first love, if it's a good experience, uh, can be in, in a certain way irreplaceable. But the first love doesn't have a context that your later love does. So it could be in the end less meaningful. And so when you, as you get older, you have the physical sensation, but you have the value connection if it's a, if it's a good relationship that you never had earlier. So you have the whole package. So the meaning of it is actually greater even though the physical exaltation might be somewhat different. The whole experience is better because everything's integrated and connected. And <laughs> I, I think they have there. 
Yeah, I think you said what I wanted to say. The one thing I would add is that if that romantic exaltation or infatuation, I don't mean this in a negative connotation, infatuation, that delicious feeling, you want that again, you can figure out for yourself what can make that happen. I know Harris, Harris, oh, I could talk about him forever, but he once, I mean, we were married for a bit and he blindfolds me, puts me in the car. Imagine going by policemen and what else? And you got this woman in the car blindfolded, right? And he drives me around on this date and I'm trying to guess where we're going by every turn. And of course I was 180 degrees off. We drive for an hour. He brings me, he, he, then we get out and I hear women's voices, strange women's voices. I'm still blindfolded and he's leading me towards these women. And he takes off the blindfold and we are exactly where we started at home <laughs> in my driveway. And the women, he had hired cooks to cook a gourmet meal, my favorite food for me for our anniversary or something. And we had it dining outside. It was so lovely. All my favorite foods. So you, if you use that idea that you work at love, now that wasn't, I don't mean work in a duty sense, that you can spice up your life like that. And Harris has done that in spades. I could write a whole book on our mystery trips that he would take me and the kids on. We'd never know where we were going to land. That brings up a very important point from our book about surprises. You know, people can get really messed up about this issue. You really have to know if your spouse likes surprises yeah. of that kind. I don't. And my wife doesn't. But you do. Well, you I know was you do. And that's, was and that's good. Yeah, I was. You're both so on the same busy. wavelength. Yeah, I was so busy in grad school; I had no time. And at one point, he asked he asked me just some questions about babysitters and things. And the next thing I know, we wake up one Saturday morning. He gives us LL Bean little bags for our kids who were little tykes at the time, and one for me. And he said, "Pack your bag for both hot and cold." And I'll make it very short. We had no idea where we're going. We're at an airport. We have no idea where we're going. People would say to the kids, where are you going? We don't know. <laughs> and he took us to Disney for a weekend uh, because I just didn't have the time to get away. So he planned it around my exams. And it was phenomenal because I didn't think I'd ever be able to take my kids to Disney. <laughs> so, I mean, you can do small things. Some of our trips were... Um, we're just camping trips out in our backyard, you know, but you can, if you want that type of a romance, you can be like Harris, I got very lucky. And, you know, just design different things that make the romance very interesting, make it fun and play, make life interesting and fun and exciting. I have to read this comment because I think everyone at this moment is saying the same thing. Uh, the second edition needs an additional second edition to the book needs an additional epilogue. How to be more like Harris and Ellen Kenner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, people, as we're going towards the end, if you have any last questions, now is the time. Let me ask my final uh, question to both of you. So, uh, except from, uh, let's say, Iron Rand's work, what is your favorite or top three favorite love stories and or some films that have 
a particular nice romantic element. So, for example, for me, although I hate thrillers, I always found fascinating the film Dracula because he literally travels to time to find her. And he has this line which says, I've traveled oceans of time to find you, which I believe is the most romantic line ever. So what, what are the works of literature or of films or maybe even music that in a way concretize romance for you? Well, my favorite are all rom Ayn Rand novels. Now they're fictional, but they're very romantic and very passionate and show common values. So uh, I don't, I'm not going to point out real life because I don't know enough about uh, other people. No, but what about books or uh, films outside of Ayn Rand's? Uh, it's hard to t tell because you don't always get the full picture. I mean, I read a lot, but uh, you don't always get the full picture. I mean, uh, Queen Victoria was very interesting because, you know, I don't believe in uh, royalty, but uh, she really, really loved her husband. But being royalty is kind of really abnormal. She really, really loved her husband. I liked the uh, reading about that and was crushed when he died. So that's a real life one, but it's royalty is not the kind of thing we're going to be part of. But uh, I thought it was a nice romantic uh, story to read about her life. And it was also in some uh, films, you know, made about her, a special series made about it. So that's one that comes to mind. All right. Thank you. Ellen? Okay, I'm going to be quick um, because, I, like Ed, I was one of, until Lisa Van Dan, Dam came around, uh, I have only been reading Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> Anthem, Atlas Shrugged. So uh, every time I wrote a course, I would reread Atlas Shrugged with that in mind. But I remember, and I don't remember the details, I remember a very, a very, sweet sensual movie dangerous beauty um uh Cyrano of course I could cheat and say Cyrano 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 like, like Ayn Rand said but I love that um I and for a third one oh from I I would have to think about it I think I loved Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy in, I'm drawing a blank, a senior moment here. Um, oh, I can't remember the author's name. And she's so familiar. Donald, maybe someone can help us in the comments. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah, probably David Hayes. Uh, oh, why can't I think of her? Okay. I'm not going to do that to myself. I've told myself <laughs> that I am never going to beat myself up if I have Jane, to say Jane Austen. <laughs> Jane Austen. Yes, I loved um, again fiction. Pride and Prejudice. Again, this is before Ayn Rand, but I remembered I just loved something about that book and I want to return to that. And I don't know why that popped into my head when you said that. I was trying to think of something sexy. What was special to me about Jane Austen yeah. is although it was ridiculous the way people lived in, like the women didn't have careers and the men somehow had mysterious money from somewhere else. But the stress in her books was character. Every single book stressed, as they understood it, good moral character. And that's one of my favorite things about Jane Austen. Oh, well, maybe that's, maybe that's what I loved as a kid. 
<laughs> and people are telling us in the comments that Lisa Van Damme is doing uh, this uh, a reading group or something. Uh, oh, I on... love it. I am a, such a fan. I have read more books or listened. And it's just reading the books on your own is very different um, from listening to Lisa's Read With Me program. It's Read With Me. It's a downloadable yeah, yeah. app. And you can always donate money to Lisa. She doesn't. It, it's free, but I'd like, you know, she's she's doing so much work. She not only gives, if for those who aren't aware of it, you can listen to all of these books, like Cyrano is one of them. One I never would have read. Silas Monner was a sweet book. I, I never would have thought that. Uh, there, um, But she gives you... She, re she does a review after each few chapters or each chapter. And so you hear, if you missed the story, you get, you get to hear it more deeply. And then she analyzes it. She is wonderful. Yeah, and, and uh, our audience wants to notify you that the next book she's doing is Pride and Prejudice. So that's, uh, that's great oh, news. Wonderful. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> So, Razi, do you can do you want to come on to do the the parting words again from me? Thank you so much for your work. Thank you. I got a lot of value from uh, from the book. I'm I'm keep reading because I haven't uh, fin I haven't finished through the through the end. But uh, yeah, it's definitely worth it. Again, even if romance at the moment is not the number one priority in your life, it's a great book. Yeah, with a funny title. Oh. And it's a legitimate priority. You know, Freud, whom I almost disagree with 100%, said the two most important things are love and work. Pretty profound in a way, if you think of love as career. I mean, love is romance, and then work is your career. And those are the two biggest sources of pleasure, uh, not the only ones. And for most people, it's the other way around. Most people would say it's love and work Quite often his objective is it's like it's more work and love. But anyway, I'll, I'll let the balance sort for people to to figure it out. Okay, Razi, are you here to do the parting words? Yeah, yeah. And as you know, as uh, we, we do more and more uh, different types of shows and events, you know, we always see that this is, uh, you know, romance is something everybody cares about, no matter, uh, you know, where they are in life, what their views are. Uh, uh, where they are in terms of a romantic relationship. And yeah, you guys, uh, both our speakers today brought uh, a tremendous amount of clarity that I don't think is there uh, even, you know, with Nikos mentioned pickup artists and all sorts of uh, dating coaches and so on. Uh, I don't think that that kind of clarity uh, exists out there. Um, so I want to thank you both for bringing that today. And um yeah, uh, yeah. As as I mentioned, we've seen how much engagement there is. Uh, there was on the chat on on YouTube as well. So this is a topic <clears throat> we're going to do more on. And if you go to our uh, Facebook page, I, I don't know if now or in the next few minutes you'll see uh, some uh, video saying what we're going to do about it in the near future. Uh, so. Thanks again to everybody. Uh, by the way, Dr. Kenner, you mentioned uh, Lisa's app, Read With Me, which is uh, free, but you can always donate. Well, much of our content is also free. Um, we are sponsored by uh, the Prometheus Foundation, and Carl Barney, who makes it possible for us to do these events for free. 
but we also have uh, things that are members only and we have uh, our membership program helps us fund a lot of what we do. So if you uh, value our work, consider going to einrandcenter.co.uk slash membership and joining the membership program. And if you uh, would like to help in other ways, I, I mentioned this at the end of our last event a couple of weeks ago, that if half the people uh, on the Zoom call went to YouTube and liked the video, we would double the number of likes. I think now uh, that's also true. And, and that helps. That helps with the YouTube algorithm. More people will see it, the more likes there are. So if you go to Ayn Rand Center, for our US audience, that's center with an R-E at the end, because that's how we spell it in the UK. Ayn Rand Center UK, and uh, like this video and subscribe if you're not subscribed. And um, thank you all again. Next week, we'll be here uh, with the event that was scheduled to be last Monday. Uh, that's next Monday with James Valiant, Creating Christ. So I hope to see you all then. Thanks.